Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to provide you with tools, tips, and resources to build a career that you love and a life that matters. I'm excited to share with you a conversation today with my good friend, Mary Faulkner. Mary is the Director of Human Resources, Talent, and Total Rewards at Denver Water, a utility company located in Denver, Colorado. We met several years ago when she was working at a different company in Denver where I had been called in by the CEO, who I had worked with in the past, to assess the situation after he had had to terminate his vice president of human resources. The goal was for me to come out for two or three days to look at the organization and see what challenges he might have ahead with his team. In reality, I ended up staying there over a year. And one of the reasons that I stayed there working with him and the team and the organization was because the human resources team was one of the best I'd ever had the opportunity to work with. And Mary was an integral part of that team. And I also want to give a shout out to Marco, Lori, Josh, Paige, and Nina as well. So thanks, team. You guys were fantastic. But Mary and I developed a friendship while working there. And one of the ways that we've stayed connected is because she has continued to share her knowledge and be involved in both speaking and blogging and writing and connecting with other people to grow her network and grow her career. I think you'll find our conversation interesting today because A lot of times I get asked the question about, you know, why is it important to build my personal brand or what can it do for me if I'm not ever looking to start my own business or become a consultant and I don't want to be a professional speaker or some of the things that maybe I do. And I think Mary is a good example of someone who is a practitioner who may or may not want to eventually start her own business someday, but I don't think she has any plans to do that at this point. But she has really grown herself professionally and personally by starting to write online on her blog called Surviving Leadership. She's also speaking in large conferences and events all over the United States and Canada. And I've just enjoyed watching her grow. So in our conversation today, she shares some of the challenges of being a practitioner who is also out there, you know, speaking and attending conferences and growing herself and and sharing what she knows with others, and also what it's done for her both personally and professionally. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation today with my good friend, Mary Faulkner. So welcome, my friend, Mary Faulkner, to the Impact Makers podcast. What are you up to today, Mary Faulkner? I am recovering from a wonderful conference of four days of talking to a billion people, apparently, uh, and just trying to get back into the swing of things. Yeah, Mary and I were chatting before we hit record about we're both uh, introverts, and while we love conferences and events and people, uh, today is a day of recovery, so <laughs> we are recovering, but Mary is back in the office. So. And I'm in the office. Yeah. <laughs> So I appreciate you taking the chance to uh, chat with me today, but uh, 
for our listeners that maybe don't know as much about Mary Faulkner as I do, and maybe to inform me a little bit, tell me a little bit about kind of your story. What's what's brought you to where you are today? So um, I have a rambling story, so I'll try to keep it somewhat succinct. Um, you were talking about earlier about you know, where do you want to start, and I could start. <laughs> so um, I am from a clan of people who all grew up in the Chicago area, but I grew up in Colorado. So did not grow up around a bunch of family members. So I'm very much a loner in the state of Colorado who still thinks they're from Chicago. (laughs) um, But uh, my whole life, I really, really wanted to be a stunt car driver. And I believe this. (laughs) Having been in a car with me. and that didn't pan out. Apparently, you have to actually like go into that early on in your career. Uh, then I wanted to be an astronaut, and that didn't pan out because I can't even read in a car, let alone be weightless. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, I kind of got into the HR world through uh, learning and development. I started an MBA and hated it. I uh, got three semesters in and decided this is a terrible choice. And I will say it right now, accounting killed me. So damn you, accountants. And got to uh, a stats course that I loved, though. And that led me through to more like performance improvement and organizational effectiveness and went and got my master's degree in instructional learning technologies and um, ended up in learning and development. And I just kind of forced got my way through my career through there. So from instructional design, I got into high potential and talent management, performance management, uh, job design. Uh, then I have worked for companies that are as big as 35,000 plus around the globe, as small as four people sitting in an office hoping to start something exciting. So um, I've done a lot of weird things in my life. <laughs> All of them good, but they've uh, I've never really had a big master plan that got me anywhere, but it always seems to kind of work out because I've tried to keep an open mind and see where things are going to take me. Awesome. And I have been in a car with Mary, so the stunt car driver dream still lives. I can trust you. Um, Just because I go on the track does not mean that I am a bad driver. <laughs> <laughs> so with that kind of varied background there, you you ended up uh, in human resources at well, you know, or in that kind of area where you're working with the people and learning and development and now in, in more of a talent management role with a lot of responsibilities for recruiting and, and a lot of things within the HR world. But over the last few years, we met um, probably 2013 mm-hmm. and maybe talk about um, kind of what's happened since then for you. You know, you were a practitioner, um, somebody who highly competent doing a lot of good work and and that's kind of how you and I connected and um, from there you you started maybe doing some things to to connect with other people and also to share what you know how so, that work I tell everybody it's your fault this is entirely Jennifer's fault so when Jennifer and I first had an opportunity to, to work together I, I would say things and she's like oh you should tweet that and I was always saying Twitter's dumb which is really funny in retrospect now. Um, But I always had this belief that 140 characters was not enough to have a cogent conversation. And why would it be on Twitter? But every time I'd say something, you should tweet that. It's like, I'm not going to tweet that. Or I'd say something else. Oh, you should write about that. You should blog. So uh, because Jennifer is persistent and naggy um, in all all the loving ways, (laughs) I started a blog. I got an idea, came up with the title of Surviving Leadership 
that it was a tie between both um, being a leader and being an employee who's being led by a leader and how you can kind of navigate that. And I picked that topic because, uh, you know, my background's in leadership development, but also I think it was sort of a great conduit to be able to talk about the full 360 experience of being in corporate America and having a boss. I mean, unless you are a person of one who never interacts, you're a, a company of one who never interacts with any other soul, uh, you're going to either have to be a leader or you're going to be led. So I thought it kind of gave me a nice broad approach. Um, and then I started live tweeting at conferences. I think the first one I really did was Sherm Chicago in 2013. That's the first year. And I was just like, I'll try this. <laughs> we'll see. And it really became a way of me to take notes for myself in the different sessions. Yeah. And then it just kind of grew from there. So because I kind of put myself out there that way, I've gotten lots of great opportunities. I've had a chance to to speak at different in different states and at different conferences. Uh, I've had folks reach out to me and ask me to attend conferences to kind of cover them from a social media perspective and just sort of share my thoughts and my, shall we say, unique perspective sometimes on things. And uh, it's it's been a really great opportunity. And I think for me, it's forced me to sort of stay more out out of just my industry and just my current practice and stay abreast of what's going on in the world in general. And I've really liked that because at my heart, I'm a problem solver and I'm super curious. And every time I talk to somebody like, oh, I should have majored in that. So I always want to learn more. And this has helped me kind of keep that mentality. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, you know, you've mentioned the opportunity to speak and to attend, to be able to, to share the content from the conferences, et cetera, you know, have because you, you you started to blog, and I think, again, you have a unique voice um, in a lot of ways, but also there uh, aren't that many mid-level practitioners, which you're, you're a director that's you know, mid-level, um, that are sharing the perspective, as you said, kind of both top-down as well as what it's like to look up mm -hmm. from a leadership perspective. Um, has that caused you to really look differently at situations that you encounter in the workplace that you think about how you might be able to share that in a, um, a way that helps others to learn from them? So I would say yes, but what's interesting, so, and I wrote a blog post about this. It's different when you're in a full-time job trying to blog. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, it, when you're either blogging anonymously or you're uh, a consultant, you can kind of take these strong stands and tell the stories and not worry so much that somebody's going to figure out who it is. Whereas in my job, something happens and I'm like, Oh, that would be such a good blog post. And now I have to wait two or three months before I write anything about it. So people forget what happened so I can actually use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think a lot of what I see on a daily basis, you know, each industry is unique and each company is unique, but there are universal themes out there. You can work for a tiny little company or a giant company, um, founder-led, not founder-led, whatever it might be, but there are universal themes that people struggle with from leadership perspective and the pressure to both lead and be led, trying to navigate what's going on uh, legislatively, socially, politically within the organization, uh, that I think it's just, it's really great to be able to pull on these and not make it just about the company and the people involved, but really talking about, so this happened and I bet this happens to all of us. And I think that really helps 
broaden the perspective and, and it might be why I, I have a really wide variety of people who read my blog, including my executive team, which is why I tend to change the name, <laughs> <laughs> and, which is great. I love that I have that kind of support, but um, I, there's, and I wrote about this in one of the blogs. I have an IT manager who always tries to guess who it's about. And I finally have just said, it's about you, Keith. <laughs> there you go. They're all about you. <laughs> They're all about you. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the themes that, you know, both from your career, even before you started blogging, but certainly as you've been kind of having that lens on life, maybe some, some leadership themes on whether it's challenges or opportunities that, that you continue to see and think about and write about? I think one of the big ones, and it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately even, is the idea of fear in the workplace. So, um, I mean, it's, it's it's something that a lot of organizations deal with. It's, it's a lot of cultures uh, struggle with the idea of fear, and it's fear of failure. If I'm, am I really going to be innovative or am I going to get yelled at because I messed up? It's fear of political um themes within the organization of like, oh, you can't possibly be against that. That would be bad for you, quote, politically. Um, and and the need for, for everyone to just have sort of that courage to step up and say, that's not right. We shouldn't be doing this. Have we thought about a different way? Um, and I don't see it so much anymore. And I'm not sure. I mean, part of it is just I'm a, as Jennifer knows, I tend to be somewhat filter free at times. So I'm trying to get better at that, Jen, really. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. but there's, there's a piece of me, you know, I think about what we saw at the conference, you know, with the whole Me Too movement and the need to have bystanders be willing to speak up and not just put it all on, on the victim's shoulders. If we could build cultures where fear is, that's not fear-based, I think it would take us a lot further. And I think we'd have better discussions and I think there'd be more trust because you wouldn't worry about putting yourself out there so much. But as it stands, there's too many people leading from a place of fear, whether it's, I'm afraid I'm going to lose what I have. Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to be retaliated against, or I'm afraid of uh, losing my job, that, that these decisions, you can tell when a fear-based decision is made because it's usually not the best one and it's usually pretty short-term thinking. So I would love to be able to figure out a way to, to get that fear-based leadership out of the workplace because I just don't think it, it works. What are some of the things that you think we can do as leaders to um, create more of a safe space for people to either bring up issues, to discuss issues, to work through issues in the workplace? Oh gosh, how long do you want this podcast to be? Um, I think <laughs> I think one of the first thing really needs that's leaders need to be aware of the impact that they're having. I don't, I, you know, there was a great Harvard Business Review article that came out a couple of weeks ago that really highlighted that people are terrible at self awareness. We just, I mean, if you ask me to rate myself in something, I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to give you a terrible answer. Um, it will probably be higher than it should be. Um, or some people are very hard at themselves and it'll be way lower than it should be. So when it comes to removing the fear there, a leader really has to sit back and say, what am I doing to drive this culture? You know, I've, I've worked with leaders who say, no, we have a totally open environment and we really embrace innovation. And yet they put in policies and procedures that require you to follow a certain step. And if you go outside of that, you get in trouble. Well, that's not going to drive innovation and experimentation, or, um, you know, they dress you down in front of a crowd thinking that 
I'm being helpful. And really what you're doing is you're teaching everybody else. I'm not going to speak up because I don't want to be that next person. So it really does have to start with leaders looking at their own reaction to how things happen within the workplace and also what kind of structure have they built in terms of infrastructure with the policies, procedures, systems that drive this need to control everything. Um, You know, I I don't want to quote Simon Sinek just because we saw his keynote yesterday, but it, it really holds true. I mean, you have to trust the people that you hire to do their job. And if you don't, what message are you really sending? And then it becomes more fear-based around, I can't because I'll get in trouble rather than I can because they trust I'm going to make a good decision. Mm-hmm. So how do you think you have evolved personally because you have um, met different people than maybe you would have if you had not started writing and, and attending events and connecting with people that you were reading what they wrote, et cetera? How do you think your career has changed? Or has it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it probably, I've, I tend to look, well, I've always been more of a systems thinker, but I think I do tend to be more big picture. Um, I learn more about the industry that I'm in. I learn about how the businesses run. Uh, I try to remember that. So my personality has always been, I know I'm right, prove me wrong. And every single Jen is laughing and, and smiling at me because she knows this about me. But I mean, it's just every single psychometric assessment I have ever taken holds true. It's like, I'm pretty database. I'm not necessarily people and people facing. So I can be perceived as stubborn or unapproachable because I'm just certain I'm right. But the thing that I am trying to get better about is to say, I'm open to having my mind changed. I just need some good evidence. So I need to say that more at the front end as opposed to being really certain this whole time. And then all of a sudden be like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. Let's go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and have a people like, what the hell was that? Yeah. So, so I'm trying to be more... Uh, I try to communicate more what I'm thinking because I do tend to be a pattern seer and just see an answer without uh, being able to sit down with you and say, I got to this answer through these 10 steps. So I'm trying to externally explain a little bit better how I got to different conclusions, which is hard for me because that is not how I work. I am not a, let me walk you through my thought process. I am, I got from A to Z in a second and here's why. (laughs) So it just makes sense to me. Why can't you do it? Um, so I think it's forced me to think, to slow down my own thought processes too, to really be like, okay, this is the answer. Well, is it really the answer? Have I considered everything? What am I missing in my thought process? Uh, And what perspective might others have that could change my mind? So I'm trying to be a lot more open. Uh, Well, I've always been open to it, but I've not been good at articulating that I'm open to it. So I'm trying to be more about like, no, tell me, help me understand why you might think that as opposed to you're a moron. Why would you think that? (laughs) And realizing words matter. (laughs) So because people aren't morons. It's just, they think differently than I do. And I need, and I've, I've done a lot to move more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, because we've been friends for a few years and I was there in the beginning of the Twitter, <laughs> the Mary Faulkner Twitter approach. Um, I've seen you over the years connect with a very kind of now globally diverse group of people, diverse in thought and location, you know, all the types of diversity um, that you likely would not have connected with otherwise. Um, 
how has that impacted your life to really, whether it's people that you've met in person or that you just interact with online, um, how has that kind of impacted you, do you think? I love it just from the standpoint of, uh, I think it's always good to get perspectives that are different than your own, um, including your com- your country's perspective, in your, even from a state perspective. Um, you know, I always, always joke that I'm like, God, Midwest HR is so different than Colorado HR, which is so different than California HR. And, I pro- and I've worked in national organizations, so I kind of understood it, but having all the different companies' perspective as well as the regional perspectives have been really helpful just to examine things from different perspectives. But that global perspective is so important just because it kind of forces you out of your belief that everyone thinks this way, everyone reacts this way. Um, I had an opportunity to work for a global organization doing leadership development. It was a Scandinavian country. And the culture was very much a no one's better than anybody else. Whereas the American leadership development side was like, I'm better than everybody else and I have to prove I am. And so that that first step into understanding like, oh, I have to rethink the way that I view even just leadership or view the way that people will approach different issues. And then continuing on with the, the Twitter exposure and being able to talk to all these people in different countries and in different industries to really be able to say, well, what do you think? How do you see this? Um, what does it look like from an outsider's perspective has really changed the way I approach certain uh issues. So like if I have something going on in, in the office and it doesn't seem right, or I have no idea how to approach an employee issue, I'll reach out to that network and say, okay, people, <laughs> how do you do this? And what are the pros and cons? And what have you found that works? And that, and while I might still go with what I thought I was going to do, at least I was exposed to all these different ideas that were very, very different from what I would have come up with on my own. Um, and I don't necessarily have to do it face to face, which is beautiful for an introvert like me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it really has, it, it's opened up the opportunity to be able to hear different voices and different perspectives across the world and kind of see how they're doing it differently. And even if I don't do it that way to, to just be aware that there are other ways. Mm-hmm. And it's also allowed you, I think, kind of um, engaging with these different types of people. I know you have always been a trainer, so speaking in front of people is not necessarily, um, you know, a foreign thing for you. But you began to um, part alongside with when you begin to connect with other people to begin to speak at conferences and events and host events and organize events. Um, you know, is that something that you would say has been helpful to you? I assume it's been helpful, but how has it helped you to kind of be able to make a bigger platform for yourself out there to share what you know with others? Yeah, it's. I think it's more about, um, it keeps me interested, which sounds kind of weird, but I always look at it as like, it's it's this awesome hobby that I have that is interesting and fun and uh, I get to learn a lot of things. And it helps. I mean, it helps me in my day job from the standpoint of, you know, I get to go to these conferences and learn about different topics and kind of what people are doing. But just from a personal perspective, um, it keeps me grounded with my roots of instructional design. So when I get to do a new top, if I, if I'm doing a new talk and I do a topic and I do it, I get to do all this research and design the slides and do all the, the dorky stuff that instructional designers like to do. Um, and it, it, makes me, it continues, you know, with that background, I've always thought of myself having 
multiple audiences. You have the audience for the trainer that you're writing the leader guide for, but then you have the audience of the learners. And so when I'm writing stuff for uh, presenting, I do have to really consider what is the audience going to want. Um, I might find this interesting. This is interesting, but how do I tell the story to get them to where they're going to be able to do some actual changes? Um, inspirational messages are fantastic, and I think they can really help people get motivated. And then what? So I try to always think of the, and then what? And uh, the Disrupt HR uh, events that I get to do, um, being one of the co-chairs of the chapter here in Denver, uh, first one outside of Cincinnati from the original. Thank you very much. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. plug in there. <laughs> but the the events that I get to do with Disrupt HR, I never would do an event if it hadn't been for this. I it's I'm not an event planner. I barely wanted to plan my wedding, um, <laughs> so I tried. To, it it has really forced me to be able to figure out, you know, what's going to put on a good event. What's going to be interesting for a wider variety of people. How do you mix up all the different topics? So I think it just it keeps me growing. It keeps me learning. Um, it's it's nice break from the day to day of being an HR practitioner. Uh, it's kind of a step away from the compliance based work that I do uh, from time to time, and it, it lets me really kind of become a more rounded professional in general. It's not just about HR. It's about people and how people value things and how people uh, approach different topics and. And it really lets me think about, you know, just what's what's going to resonate with folks, and how are we going to get them coming back to another event, mm-hmm. <laughs> or or want me to come speak again because I because I do enjoy doing that. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just another facet because I I would be bored if I just did one thing every yeah. day. Well, I think one thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize, and you know, I I certainly was a practitioner myself, uh, working in the corporate world for a number of years, and now as a full-time speaker, I'm at a lot of events because that's my job. But at conferences, events, not just HR conferences, events, any industry, you you hear from the audience, and I'm sure as an event planner, it's you know they certainly know to expect that feedback that. The audience, if it's an industry conference or, you know, again, let's just use a human resources conference for example, the feedback is often we don't see enough practitioners on the stage. Uh At the same time, um, conference organizers have to look at that as we need to make sure that we have people who can give a great talk, who understand how to engage a room, you know, so there's, there's things that have to be balanced on both sides. But I often don't think that people realize that people like yourself, what you have to go through as a practitioner to actually be able to do something which is, quote, not your job. You know, how does your leadership look at the fact that you are out speaking on a stage or you are uh, out of the office to be at an event um, that is more than just for your one learning opportunity per year? So what's that been like as a practitioner that that a lot of people say we want more people to do that, but what's it like to actually be able to do that and what are some of the challenges that you face? There's, I mean, there's really a lot. Um, I'm lucky enough that, you know, early on when I joined my current organization, I just kind of said, I already had some uh, speaking engagements lined up and I said, I'm going to need to be out for these things. And my boss said, oh no, that's great. It builds our brand. I'm like, perfect. So I took that as an opportunity to say, I will be able to go to speak anytime I want to. (laughs) So so part of that was just me. I'm just going to do it. But you really have to have an understanding organization you have to be willing to ask for that permission. I'm lucky. I don't always have to take time off, paid time off for it. 
but a lot of people do. So if you're a conference organizer and you're bemoaning the fact that you don't have practitioners, think about scheduling. Think about, you know, offer practitioners, but only make them have to come in on a Monday so that they can come back to work if they have to. Or, hey, how about offer to pay their way a little bit? Because a lot of practitioners are doing this on their own dime. And um, they don't always have the deep pockets or they don't look at it as a marketing marketing opportunity for them because it's not. You know, when I go and speak at conferences, I tend to always start with, I'm a practitioner. This is not my day job. My day job is your day job. So that they understand that I'm doing this because I think it's important that we all learn from one another as opposed to I'm trying to build my business. And when when conference event planners are, are just saying, like, we can't get practitioners, Give them an opportunity, but make it easier for them to give an opportunity. Uh, state planners, look for locals more often than not. Um, go to find events like Disrupt HR and, and, and try to hone your craft. Um, be open to the fact that you're going to have a lot of first-time presenters, so requiring rating sheets from a previous conference might not be very helpful because a lot of these people don't have them, or they spoke locally, and they don't do official rating sheets. So from from my perspective as a as a practitioner, the system is built for consultants, which I'm not necessarily against. Consultants do amazing things. You have amazing speakers like yourself, Jim. But if you do want to get more people in there, make some room for the people who don't have that as their value proposition. Um, I mean, I've been invited to speak at conferences where they want me to pay my own way 100%. And when I back it's like listen I'm a practitioner is there anything you can do and they say well it's for the exposure I'm like I don't need an exposure I have a day job <laughs> you know yeah. so we need to just make sure that uh, we're giving opportunities to people who want to speak and give them room to learn it I mean we're not all going to be keynote speakers the first time out uh, it might be a little bit rough here and there but um, I think there's some real value to be had to to hear from the benefits manager who's dealt with the world's worst open enrollment ever and what they learned from it, or from the employee relations person who's dealt with deaths in the, in the workplace and how they got through it. I mean, these are real basic things, but they're things that practitioners deal with on a daily basis. And to be able to hear from the people who deal with it every single day, I think it would be really powerful. And again, not to take anything away from the consultants going out there talking about these big picture, wonderful ideas, but sometimes you just need to hear from the, the person who's been there and who might get a little emotional because they dealt with that or um, who can really empathize with the crowd that's there and, and, and hopefully kind of raise the bar in how we talk about it, not just at conferences, but also within the organization. Because I think if people just start getting comfortable sharing the stories um, in a meaningful way, we can all just share a little bit better and learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and can you offer advice? You know, certainly I get a lot of questions about from people who would like to become a speaker or build a speaking business. I also talk to plenty of people who, you know, again, it's the number one fear or so they say that getting up and speaking in front of others is, is there, I love what you said about the fact that you're not doing it to build your business. And so that's the tip, you know, how people typically perceive the model being that a speaker is on stage to sell you something or to book additional opportunities to speak. So if I'm a practitioner, and I either maybe talk about it from both perspectives. I don't really see the value to me of getting out and maybe communicating, uh, whether that's a small stage or a conference stage or a large stage, or if I do see the value of it, what are some steps I can take? Um, Think about what your message is going to be. I mean, the first thing is get over your fear of speaking. 
uh, if you ever, if you, even if you don't want to be a speaker in your life, if you have ambitions to rise up in an organization to leadership level, you are going to be presenting to someone. It's going to be to an executive team. It's going to be a board. It's going to be a leadership conference, whatever it is, you're going to be speaking. So that's a good practice to get into. Um, if you want to get some practice in, you know, find out if you have a Toastmasters in your area. It's, it's a great area. It's a great place to kind of learn how to just put together a story or put together a talk. Go to conferences yourself and see others. And if you've always thought, I could do that better, maybe you could. Give it a shot. Um, and, and you'll look for those smaller events where you can maybe start to practice your talks. You don't all have to go out and do like a four-hour workshop. You can find a Disrupt HR, which is five minutes. You can find somewhere they need 15 minutes. Your local SHRM chapters almost all have some sort of a lunch and learn program. Go talk to them and see if they have any openings. Um, ATD, or used to be ASTD. What are they now? I don't remember. I think it's ATD now, but the old ASTD. This is <laughs> they, the training development organization. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It's the training and development organization. They just rebranded it. I'm terrible about it. They do the same thing. So find opportunities to go speak there. Um, and then corral your coworkers to be your audience and just try it. And the number one thing that I tell people who have never spoken before or are really nervous about speaking is they say they don't know what your talk is supposed to be. None of those people are sitting out there with a script waiting to ding you when you miss a word. So just go out there, share your story, share your slides. If you mess up, you mess up, you move on, you're human. And that's why they're here to see you. If they didn't want to see a human being telling a human story, they would go listen to an audiobook or they would go watch a movie. So this is an opportunity for you to really kind of share your story and be real about it. And, and from a value perspective as a practitioner, I think, you know, there's this, this intrinsic, I love to share knowledge with people. I'm like, Ooh, did you know this? I'm a trivia nut. So here's a whole bunch of stats, but um, the value is that you're going to learn so much from an audience too, because depending on how you do your session or the crowd, you might not have an interactive session built, but there are some people who um, really want it to be interactive. <laughs> so they'll make it that way. And that's okay. Be open to that. But even afterwards, and you talk to people, you're going to hear some amazing stories from people who are dealing with same things. I did a talk on talent acquisition and I just kind of give an overview of like, here's the state of what it looks like right now and some of the challenges that you might be facing and some of the things that I've done to try to move us forward. And they come to you with so many different challenges. And you, I mean, in some ways you're like, gosh, I thought my job was hard. I don't know how you recruit that position. Or they come and they share with you, oh, here's how we overcame that. And so as a practitioner, that's gold. I mean, that's some great stuff that you can put into your toolkit and be able to share with other people or share back at your organization to really make a difference and move the profession forward. Mm -hmm. And I love how you kind of framed it up initially. It's it's really, maybe we should stop calling it speaking. It's really communicating. And yeah. whether you want to be in a leadership role or not, we are all communicating with people. And so learning how to frame your thoughts in a way that you can present what you know. And as you said, then be uh, take advantage of the opportunity to get the feedback uh, from that. Then that can help you in a lot of ways as a professional, as a person, just in general. Definitely. So I always like to ask, you know, when you look back over your life, both personally, professionally, 
who are some of the people, maybe one or two people that have been impact makers in your life and, and how have they kind of uh, helped you to get to where you are today? Um, I would say uh, there's two folks. Um, one was, uh, I'm going to forget Jimmy's last name. Jimmy was the uh, CEO, chairman of the board of IP Voice, which is a now defunct startup organization that I worked for in the 90s. But he was very much of the impression of, I just need you to go figure it out. So he gave me the confidence and the room to just say, he would just say, you know what, we need a website, go learn how to do a website, or we need investor relations, go learn how to do that. And he didn't put any parameters around it. Um, he was kind of crazy. He was, he was a guy from Britain who was a roadie for the, for the, um, the animals in the 60s. <laughs> so he had a different way of looking at things. But what I took from that was, that's the kind of leader that I want. I want and that's the kind of leader I want to be, is somebody who says, I have this idea, help me figure out how to make it happen. So he was one. Um, Carla Scholl, who was my boss at Dish Network for a while. Uh, I'm still great friends with Carla. Carla was another one who, she's insanely smart, by the way. Uh, she has her PhD in IO psychology. She has an amazing background. And she was always willing to step back and say, well, I don't know how to do that. How would you do it? And that's that was very impactful for me as well from a standpoint that I could think like, yeah, how would I do that? And I should ask more people how they would do that too. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't say you. Because oh, this is a setup. I like it. <laughs> we didn't talk about this a hand set. But seriously, if you hadn't been so naggy and insistent, <laughs> I like how I'm described as compared to the other two wonderful folks. <laughs> Clearly, Jennifer is a wonderful, smart, warm human being. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you bring so much to the table. <laughs> but honestly, had that whole crazy, perfect storm of things not happened, I wouldn't be online. I wouldn't be speaking. I'd probably be working. I'd probably be working in a very similar situation, but uh, my job, my, my career probably be a similar path, but I wouldn't have the network that I have today. I mean, you made me go to, well, no, you let me go to Sherm National. And then I got to meet all the crazy people in my life right now. You know, like the Lori Rudemans, the Paul Heberts, the Matt Stolics, uh, the Steve Browns, all these people that I never would have met if you hadn't kind of forced me out of my kind of internal, I love problems and I think about things, but only by myself and I don't share. Um, you kind of made me think about you should be sharing these things. So thank you, Jen. I like and, and the crazy people will appreciate that you, <laughs> you mentioned them as well. So. They fully own their own lives. <laughs> oh, everyone's a little crazy, right? So what's next? I mean, lots of good things happening for you. You're speaking at the um, SHRM, which is, again, the largest HR uh, professional Association, their annual conference, um, many, many thousands of people in Chicago this year, and you'll be speaking again. So that's one thing kind of coming up in the future. But what's what's happening for Mary Faulkner down the road? How do you expect to be making an impact? Yeah, I think I'm open, you know, one of the so it's a it's a pro and a con with my life. I've never had a plan. I you know, I have, I have vague thoughts of what I want to do. Um, I I have probably the idea for about 15 different books in my head. Uh, I would love to write one. I have no idea how to go about doing it. So I know I should just start writing. Um, I'll keep writing my blog. I think it's starting to expand a little bit beyond surviving leadership and just more general topics. Um, and, you know, I just want to keep learning. It's, it's, I don't even know 100% if I'm going to stay in HR for the rest of my life. Uh, I think it's a great field. I think it can make such an impact within any organization. 
I'm just too interested in everything. So it will always be tied to people in some way, which is really ironic because every single test I've ever taken tells me to stay away from people. But I just find people so interesting. <laughs> that's that's uh, rhetorically, stay away from people. She works in HR. <laughs> No, true story. So you, can edit, you can edit this out if you want to. But no, no, that's the <laughs> So when, when, I, uh, when I applied to work for Vestas, which was the international organization I worked for, they do Hogan assessments, which is a great uh, set of assessments. And it's personality and uh, it's quantitative, qualitative personality, all this kind of stuff. And they do a really nice job with it because then they have a consultant come in and they kind of look at it. And then they ask you follow-up questions just to make sure from a standpoint of um, – clarifying questions around some of your answers. So I had my first initial interview with the woman who became my boss, Jerry, and went really well. And then I took the assessment and we had our follow-up interview with the consultant and, and Jerry. And she just kind of went, your results were interesting. Interesting. Huh. And I said, did it say that I shouldn't work with people? And she said, yeah, like you, you are very far down the doesn't play with others type of <laughs> spectrum. More, more just, I don't think relationally, I think very much on the analytic and conceptual side of things. And I said, I always use myself as an example of why assessments like this are just a preference and should never be used to keep people from doing a certain type of job. Even though it says my preference is to not work with people and to kind of keep it on the data side, I just find things so darn interesting that I want to do this work. It takes me a little bit more kind of psychic energy, if you will, to do it. But it's just interesting to me. So I'm willing to accept the, the, the trade-off in energy and effort because I just think it's interesting. People are so different. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Data does what it's supposed to do. Systems do what they're supposed to do. People don't. People have so many variables in their lives and they make decisions in so many different ways and in different combinations that it would just be too limiting to just never work with people because you just never know what's going to happen next. And I just find that so fascinating that of course I'm going to work with people, even if I go home and complain about them all day. <laughs> just to the dog, not to anybody Just else. to the dog. That's right. <laughs> no, um, Ryan hears it too. <laughs> your husband hears it too. Absolutely. Well, Mary, you, you, this is not a setup either. You have certainly been an impact maker in my life and I appreciate the opportunity that I've been given to get to know you and you need to rest assured that I will not stop nagging until you have written a book. <laughs> Good. I need that. <laughs> so in the future, when the book is published, I do expect the forward to include my name. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Dedicated to Jen McClure. <laughs> yes, I like that. All right. Thank you for taking the time out of your day uh, to spend some time with me here on the podcast. And now it's time for you to go back out there and work with those people and make an impact, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. All right. One of the best things about the journey of making an impact in the world is the people that you meet along the way and seeing how they're creating impact. My friend, Laurie Rudiman, is one of those people. She's a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur who is setting out to fix work. In her podcast called Let's Fix Work, she's tackling why work is often so miserable for many people and what we can all do to fix it. Here's some of what she's talking about. During the past 10 years, I've developed a huge network of friends and colleagues. These are people who are passionate about fixing work. They have big ideas. They're authors, speakers, consultants, and even HR ladies who want to help workers find purpose and meaning. So I'm starting a podcast to interview my friends who want to fix work. 
I love the Let's Fix Work podcast, and I think you will too. Check it out and subscribe over at letsfixwork.com. If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.